Welcome to Dementia Matters, a podcast presented by the Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center. Our podcast is here to educate you on the latest research, caregiver strategies, and available resources for fighting back against Alzheimer's disease. I'm your host, Nathaniel Chin. Thanks for joining us. Today on Dementia Matters, my guests are Rebecca Kosick and Toby Bethauser, both PhD researchers at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Dr. Kosick is a senior scientist in the Wisconsin Alzheimer's Institute and Wisconsin Registry for Alzheimer's Prevention, RAP, study, where she has studied Alzheimer's disease since 2003. Dr. Bethauser is an assistant scientist researcher in the Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center, where he studies advancements in brain imaging and cerebrospinal fluid biomarkers of Alzheimer's disease. They are here with me today to discuss their recent research on a new concept in Alzheimer's disease research, and that is amyloid chronicity and amyloid and tau trajectories. Welcome to Dementia Matters. Thanks, Thanks for the invitation. Now, before we <laughs> delve into the science, I want to start with this. I want to start this interview with a question I ask a lot of guests, and that's what got you interested in this field of Alzheimer's disease and dementia research. Now, Dr. Kosick, why don't we start with you? Thank you. That's a really interesting question. So I've worked as a statistician since 1989, um, but after working in statistics, I realized I wanted to do more, and I uh, went back and got my PhD in educational psychology with an emphasis in school psychology. So I learned a lot about cognitive assessment and um, developmental occurrences at the young age of the developmental spectrum. But then I realized I missed research and there was an opportunity to come back to the Department of Biostatistics because they needed a statistician who also understood cognitive assessment data. So that was how I came back into research um, at the medical school and I started, it was a cystic fibrosis project with uh, adolescents, um, but then I came on board with Dr. Sanjay Asana's research group and um, also began working in Alzheimer's disease. And so that's how I got here. Started with the young and are ending with the old? Yes, there's a lot of similarities between the two ends of the spectrum. (laughs) And cognitive milestones, which is true throughout our entire lives. Exactly. Well now, statistics are important in research. They're extremely important when studying diseases of aging, where we're looking at changes over decades and not just in this, a simple experiment. So in Alzheimer's disease, how we analyze data is critical. So can you share with us what you've learned from all of your work on Alzheimer's disease and the importance of using good statistics? Yes, uh, that's a great question. In fact, I'll expand it a little bit. It's not just good statistics, but it's good statistical design. So making sure we have enough people in a study to answer the question we're interested in is important to knowing if the if the results we got are reliable indicators of what we're interested in. So that's sort of in general about statistics, but in, in Alzheimer's specifically, um, one of the really exciting things we get to do here because of the RAP study and the, uh, ADR, the Alzheimer's Disease Research Center's parallel study is we get to look at what's happening before clinical symptoms appear. And so with good statistics, we can detect really subtle early changes and we can help figure out sort of the implications for clinical relevance. And then we can also help learn the earliest changes in the biomarkers that are related to the brain pathology associated with Alzheimer's. 
Well, on, on another part of the research, so Dr. Bethauser, how did you get into your particular field within Alzheimer's disease research? Sure. So um, I actually started out as an audio engineer, um, which doesn't seem like it would have many parallels to Alzheimer's, but I'll get there. Um, but this was uh, around 2010. I decided to get out of it. Um, I wanted to do something that was a bit more impactful. Um, I didn't really feel like my contribution was uh, much just making music all day long. Um, so I got into physics um, and then wanted to go into something more applied, so medical physics, which is more or less the application of uh, physics to medicine. Um, and, and a lot of that is um, in, the, in the worlds of oncology and also uh, any kind of like medical imaging scan you could think of, so like an x-ray, a CT, um, PET imaging, positron emission tomography imaging, which is really where my background is. Um, I was fortunate to end up or land in um, Dr. Brad Christian's uh, lab here at the University of Wisconsin. Um, he does a lot of um, really impressive developmental work on pet uh, radio tracers that we use to track different um, brain targets. And um, he, we, well, the field and, and uh, the ADRC here were just getting into tau imaging. And so um, I was able to get a lot of experience there. Um, looking at tau, which is one of the protein aggregates that we look at in Alzheimer's disease. So um, I, I, I kind of, it was a little bit of serendipity and a little bit of purposeful <laughs> drive once I got into it. Um, and then with, with Alzheimer's too, I have a, a family history um, both on both sides of my family. So it's, it's, it's very nice to work on something where, um, you know, you can make a direct impact. And because we can't actually go into people's brains, we need to have a way of studying the brain in live time or sort of live time that's protective of them, but also helpful to us in figuring out what changes are happening that are normal versus abnormal. And over time, what do those abnormal changes mean? Right. And that's something that you in particular look at. Right, and I think to, to add to that too, I mean, I, I like to draw parallels to cancer research because I feel like it's, um, it's, there's a lot of parallels there. The, the thing with most cancers is that they happen on a truncated time scale, right? So um, from the time you can detect a cancer um, to when you, know, you, you reach some uh, clinical endpoint, it could be a matter of three to five years, right? Alzheimer's disease, we're talking decades. So we're kind of in it for the long haul, as, as Rebecca suggested. Um, you know, we really need studies that are designed kind of from the initial phases to look at these things. Um, and, then, and then we have to figure out what they mean, right? I mean, we can, we can look at these um, amyloid and tau um, biomarkers. Um, we can say whether they're, you know, elevated or not, but, um, you know, we need to get that context of what does that mean clinically for somebody, you know, now or five years from now. Um, and then, of course, there's a bunch of implications for clinical trials and Right. Um, prevention trials and things in that, that world as well. Well, then let me ask you, now when talking about research dealing with amyloid PET scans in particular, I often hear people refer to elevated versus non-elevated or, or positive versus negative. And some people even have said sub-threshold versus over the threshold, which makes it all very confusing for people not in the field. So can you talk a little bit about the tracer, the amyloid PET tracers themselves, how they work, and what are you actually measuring when we get these scans? Right, so, I mean, the goal, right, is to, to track the pathological process. So um, in, in pathology, we can, we can look under a microscope and we can see these changes. So 
Um, again, drawing the cancer parallel, you know, if you go in for a, a tumor biopsy, a, a pathologist can put that on a microscope. They can say you do or don't have cancer, right? Um, with the brain, that's much more difficult. Obviously, we can't be taking tissue sections of the brain during life. Um, and so we, we need um, imaging techniques and non-imaging techniques to be able to look at the, um, the, the in this case, proteins, but um, just the, the, the biological markers of a disease process. And so um, with, with PET, we're able to um, have, um, they're no different than any other drug, except for they're just, there's much uh, less of it when we inject it. And they're, uh, they're, there's a radioactive isotope attached, and we can detect the radiation that emits from that isotope. So what that allows us to do is to take a drug, inject it into a person, and then we can follow the distribution of that drug throughout the body, and in this case, the brain. And we can do some pretty nice, fancy methods to get at, um, you know, determining the, um, the amount of, uh, say, amyloid or tau uh, within some part of the brain, some region of the brain. Um, and as it comes to detection and things, there are many processes that can affect detection. And I think that that's one of the things that we're really starting to learn with this longitudinal analysis that um, both Rebecca and I have been working on is, you know, where is that meaningful signal? You know, um, it, it's similar to what Rebecca was saying about, you know, there's there's noise in the cognitive data. Well, there's noise in any data. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, we have to understand what that noise is and, and what's meaningful signal in that noise and how to pick that out, yeah. So two things about that answer I want to clarify. One isotope, is that more just a chemical? <laughs> um, so that's like a, it's like an element on the periodic table, right? But it's, it's radioactive. So it's, um, you know, the, the types of elements that you use for PET imaging are not the stable isotopes that you see on the periodic table of elements. So those that will sit there indefinitely in some form forever, right? Um, but with radioactive isotopes, they, they undergo radioactive decay. Um, and there are very specific, um, physical processes that, that uh, determine how fast that happens. Um, but by emitting, they emit particles when they, when they decay, and we can actually detect those, um, those particles. So you want them to decay so that you can pick we, up yep, the signal. Right, we need them to decay. <laughs> and then the second part, which because you've said the word a couple of times, and I want our audience, especially our participants, to hear this explanation. Radioactive usually is thought of as a scary term, but in this regard, we're not fearful of the radioactivity. Right, so um, so there are a number of studies that happen before any kind of pet tracer makes it to any human research. Um, there's uh, toxicology studies that happen um, basically in a petri dish or in animal models. Um, and all of these things uh, give us some indication of the, the safety of, of the tracers we're injecting, right? And so that includes, um, you know, like what a typical drug would have, so if you were um, developing a new drug like aspirin, right, or something, right? You need to know at what level is it effective, but also at what level is it dangerous. Um, so all of those studies happen um, prior to getting into humans, and then on the radioactive element of it, we do um, what are called dosimetry studies um, to understand how much that radioactivity is um, effectively delivering a, a radio radioactive dose to the patient, um, or, or in this case, participants. So. Um, the, there's a challenge in radiation dosimetry that, um, you know, very low levels of radiation, it's hard, to, you can't really do a proper study in humans. So, um, you know, there's, you can draw parallels to things like flying on a plane from New York to Los Angeles or 
um, other types of radiation exposure that are equivalent to a PET scan um, that are thought to be safe. Well, with that too, I, I then I want to move into this this very important publication. You have two of them. I want to start with the one that happened in brain. I know the other one happened in what exact? Alzheimer's and dementia, the Diagnosis Assessment and Disease Monitoring Journal. Okay. Well, so let's start with the one in brain. And I say important, but really it's quite novel what you guys are showing. And so if we could start by explaining to our audience what exactly you were looking at and then what you found. Sure. So um, I think to, to, to begin with, I think it's important to understand kind of the timeline of when things became available. So um, Re Rebecca mentioned the RAP study um, being around since around 2005. So we have all of this cognitive data that's been collected um, over this period of, you know, 10 or more years um, prior to when some of these pet tracers became available. So um, one of the pet tracers that has only recently become available is MK6240, and this looks at um, tau tangles. So we're, we're just kind of now getting a picture of what tau looks like in the brain with this radio tracer. And so that was kind of where we anchored the time point to. So we, we said, okay, people had this tau scan, and then they had eight or 10 years of cognitive uh, tests prior to that tau scan. And um, what we wanted to know is, um, based on their tau scan and their amyloid scan that happened at the same time, um, we can determine kind of um, people that have elevated levels versus not elevated levels of amyloid and tau based on imaging. And then we can look backwards in time and say, how did these people perform, you know, in the previous eight years before we had these PET scans? And so the, the big research question we had was, one, did these people perform differently over time? So um, we had four groups, people that could be negative for both amyloid and tau, um, people that could be positive for just amyloid or just tau, uh, or positive for both amyloid and tau. And we compared how um, those four groups, people in those four groups, uh, performed over time in that previous eight-year period. Uh, and um, so we wanted to see if those, um, what we're calling cognitive trajectories, so their change over time, if those differed between those biomarker groups, and then um, if so, how were they different? Um, so that was really the main analysis. And what we found was that, um, so this was 167 people from the Wisconsin Registry for Alzheimer's Prevention, um, and this was, the, the, the imaging was mostly conducted under um, Dr. Sterling Johnson's PREDICT study. And uh, what we found is that people that had elevated levels of both amyloid and tau on imaging had been declining much faster compared to any of those other groups, and that those other groups were not different uh, statistically um, in longitudinal cognitive performance. Um, so it's, it's kind of a first step in this early detection idea. So all of these people were cognitively unimpaired when they started the, the, the uh, study, so we could say normal cognitively. So we found that um, only six of these people were MCI, um, had mild cognitive impairment at their PET scan, um, and um, all of those pretty much just became MCI at their last cognitive visit. So um, what we were seeing is that these cognitive changes were occurring several years before the PET scans, um, where these people that had both um, higher levels of amyloid and tau at the end of study had been declining for several years before um, we did those imaging scans. So. Um, it's, a, it's kind of a first step towards understanding um, what these biomarkers tell us about um, 
you know, how somebody can is going to perform related to um, Alzheimer's disease. Um, so, it, and it suggests that people with um, with both amyloid and tau um, are declining faster in cognition even during this phase of disease where they haven't met clinical uh, levels for um, cognitive impairment. And then how does this study relate to the most recent publication that you guys have had in Alzheimer's and dementia? So the most recent study we published uh, is a paper where we're looking at translating this measurement of how much amyloid is in the brain at any given time to an estimate of how long has amyloid been present in the brain. Because we have a lot of people, somewhat like oh, a little over 70%, who don't have evidence of amyloid in their brain yet. And then we have people with varying levels. So this earlier conversation about PIB positivity or amyloid positivity versus subthreshold or things like that, there's a ton of interesting questions that can be asked about, is it being over a level that matters or is it how long it's been present in your brain that matters? Because there is a theory, a cascade theory in Alzheimer's disease that, that the pathology begins with amyloid um, or that's one, at least one of the earliest things. And then because of that, other things may begin to happen. So this most recent paper, it's work that um, Toby and I and Dr. Johnson and others have been working on and thinking about, can we translate this measurement of amyloid into a duration of, of burden? Because we think that understanding that's not, it might improve our um, clinical trial design by selecting people that are in a critical window or some treatments may be more effective at this stage of amyloid duration versus others. It will help us understand which, um, which pathologies develop first and second. So with the, the tau and the amyloid imaging work that Toby's doing now, we're beginning to see that there's a gap in time um, where we're seeing more evidence that for a lot of people there's a gap between it when amyloid occurs and then when tau occurs. So it just opens up the opportunity to look at the questions from a slightly different perspective. And do we have any findings or any significance to whether or not chronicity, having amyloid for longer, has any impact? Yes, yeah, so in that paper what we end up, um, what we ended up showing was that the longer you have amyloid um, in your brain are estimated as long and then I just have to put in it is highly related to how much amyloid is measured but it's a different way of looking at it so having had it longer um, makes you makes a person more likely statistically to be exhibiting declines similar to what Toby just described either to a point of mild clinical impairment or cognitive impairment rather, or just subtle declines relative to others in our study that say, hey, this is a statistical um, difference that we think is showing real, real change. Um, and then we also saw a relationship between this amyloid chronicity or duration and some of the measures of tau. And so that's where we started seeing some of that gap of maybe you know eight to 10 years after chronicity, it, it depends on how you measure it, but we know we can see that there's a lag um, between when the amyloid is detectable and when the tau is detectable. You wouldn't really be able to ask these questions or answer them if you didn't have people coming in year after year, exactly. almost two decades. Yes. Well, and I think you hit on, that's really the key point. Like the, 
the especially the chronicity work, but even the the brain paper, these things aren't possible unless we follow things over long courses of time. Um, you know, we're really learning that this amyloid accumulation period is several decades, two to three decades, maybe more than that. And that's just what we can detect with PET imaging. We, we also know that there's stuff that's happening that we can't yet detect um, with like PET, for example. So, um, but, but it's, um, it's one of those things where, yeah, we, we, you, you can't just look at a single snapshot in time a bunch of bunch, across a bunch of people and put it together. Um, you really need to know how people change through the course of a disease, and that's really what um, the RAP study and, and the PREDICT sub-study are really designed to do. This chronicity makes a lot of sense to me from a medical perspective because we know that when you say, for instance, a person has diabetes, well, having that diagnosis matters, but knowing how long they've had that diagnosis, how long they've had issues with sugar, how severe those issues have been in the past, it all varies over time, but it all matters. So it makes sense to me, at least, as a, as a non-amyloid specialist, that this would be an important piece of information. The other thing I would like to end with is that, that question of whether of how some people can have high amounts of amyloid and not develop tau, I think is important because as a clinician, this potentially is my place of intervention, that are there certain things that people are doing that are building resilience to that amyloid protein preventing tau. Now that's all speculation, but I, I think it's important that we have that question because that is something that people can do right. without a medication, they can do on their own. Mm -hmm. So with that, I would like to end by asking each of you, what is one thing that you prioritize about your life that you think could be building that brain buffer or producing insults to the brain that you are just doing intentionally. Sure, so um, probably two things to, to add there. <laughs> um, I would say 80 researchers tend to not do a great job of following their own advice. <laughs> um, but, um, and that's probably an overgeneralization. But, um, you know, I, th I think the, the research is, is pointing to two kind of things, that there's, there's a biological pathway. Um, and at least in amyloid, that, that that timeline and that pathway really seem to be um, pretty robust to a lot of external influences. So I think that's where Rebecca and I were really surprised to, to see some of these findings. And, you know, no matter what kind of things we throw at it, you know, your, your health style, um, things that you eat, you know, how much you sleep, all these things, it doesn't seem to move that amyloid bit much. But that doesn't mean it doesn't affect cognition, right? Those are, those are, they're, they're, they're intertwined, but they're not, you know, mutually exclude. Or what was I saying? They're intertwined, but they're not. Um, they're not. They're not uh, connected in a way that you know they don't impact each other, and other things can't impact them, right? So, um, so I think to that point, um, you know, there are plenty of things you can do to improve your cognition, right? Um, sleep, which with young kids and in research, I don't get much of. So, um, <laughs> exercise, diet, you know, you try to supplement some of these other things that, um, you know, at least clear up your mind so you can think better. Um, you know, those things maybe or maybe do or don't affect the biology, but those are questions we're, we're still investigating and we need answers for, especially with these differences in, in, you know, for two different people that have the same level of ele elevated amyloid and one of them has tau and one of them doesn't, you know, I mean, that's like, why is that different? And we don't know that answer yet. 
So that's a good way of avoiding answering my question. So, <laughs> Rebecca, how about you? I would say I like to prioritize getting exercise and um, and doing things. Exercises I find fun, so um, I walk a lot, but I walk with friends usually, and that provides some social engagement too. Or um, I play ultimate frisbee with my daughter and a, a group of people, and and so I find that the exercise is really good for um, feeling, thinking more clearly. All right, and and fun is the right word because both of you smile a lot and you enjoy your work and you're passionate so perhaps there's something about purpose as well so with that I'd like to end but I do want you both to come back as these results come in and we have more to say about amyloid chronicity and amyloid and tau and how a person is doing over time that would be really fun thank you so much for the opportunity to be here thank you Dementia Matters is brought to you by the Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center. The Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center combines academic, clinical, and research expertise from the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health and the Geriatric Research Education and Clinical Center of the William S. Middleton Memorial Veterans Hospital in Madison, Wisconsin. It receives funding from private, university, state, and national sources, including a grant from the National Institutes of Health for Alzheimer's Disease Centers. This episode was produced by Rebecca Wazaleski and edited by Abishir Adin. Our musical jingle is Cases to Rest by Blue Dot Sessions. Check out our website at adrc.wisc.edu. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook. If you have any questions or comments, email us at dementiamatters at medicine.wisc.edu. Thanks for listening.